Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 965 in that Bible. Matthew chapter 1, and we're in a short little Christmas series that we've called He is Here. And that's an obvious statement for those of us who follow after Jesus. At Christmas, we are honoring the fact that Jesus has come, that the Lord is here. But we are taking some time over these few weeks just to talk about some different sides of who Jesus is and why it's important that he came. And I have often referred to, uh, around Christmas time, the story of Christmas Carol. And this is uh, a story that I love. It was written by Charles Dickens in the mid-1800s. It's been made and remade and remade in movies. And uh, it is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. Most of us probably know it. And he is a, uh, just a horrible man. And he is incredibly wealthy, but incredibly selfish, incredibly stingy. Uh, he has no care or concern for anyone but himself. And he's just miserable and angry and, and cranky and insufferable. And the Christmas Carol story is his story, and he has this encounter with three spirits, and his life is transformed by the end of the story, if you don't know it. So I'm going to show you a clip from the end of the story. This is the animated version from about 10 years ago. Jim Carrey's doing the voices, and uh, in this, this is after he's had this encounter, uh, Scrooge is a new man. And so this is the end. One of the things he's going to do in this uh, clip is encounter a man who had come to his office the day before looking for some charity to help the poor. Scrooge had thrown him out, and so he's waking up the next day transformed. Take a look. Well, it's a pretty common theme in Christmas movies, whether it's Scrooge becoming a different man by the end, or the Grinch, whose heart grows three sizes, or George Bailey, who has his whole life perspective rearranged, or the horrible, horrible Hallmark movies that my wife watches. There's a character who has a change of, of heart in some way or another. Sarah watches those ones by herself. Um, <laughs> But it, it does happen a lot, and, and usually it's something to do with Christmas that connects to it. But if you read The Christmas Carol, the original book that Charles Dickens wrote, uh, it's a bit clearer in there. Hollywood doesn't usually touch on it, but it's clearer in there that these three spirits that come to him are from heaven. They are, they are angels more than uh, anything else, and they have come to transform him. And the ghost of Christmas past comes to Scrooge and says, we have come for your redemption. You need to change. You need to be different. And so it's not like in these stories, uh, any of them, there's you know a clear gospel presentation, and someone comes to Jesus, and they are a new creation. But the theme is there of transformation, and the theme is there of redemption. The people who were angry become more loving. The people who were selfish now think of others. The people who were one way have come into something completely different. And that is, in essence, the gospel story, right? We were sinners. We are now being made a new creation. And as we come into Christmas time, that is what we celebrate, that the one who saved us has come. We talked about last week that the Savior who delivers us out of our sin and delivers us out of our death has come. We needed saving, and so God sent us a Savior. That would be plenty right there, but there is actually even more. It's not just that God has come to save us. God has come to redeem us. God has come to change us. God has come to redeem our lives and redeem our circumstance, and so that is where we're going to be going today. Let's take a look at our text then. We're in Matthew chapter 1. And we're starting right at the top in verse 1. This is how Matthew kicks off his good news account of Jesus Christ. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Take a breath, here we go. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconia and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. <gasps> After the exile to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Sheol. Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azar, Azar, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. All right. Yeah, yes, yes. I deserve that. So, this is how Matthew kicks off his good news story of Jesus Christ. There are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each author is trying to convince people that Jesus is worth following. And so each author comes at it from a little different route. And Matthew's start is not really the most dramatic or interesting beginning to a story, right? And so if you start at Mark's Gospel, Mark jumps right into the baptism. Jesus is called by God, and his ministry is kicking off, and here we go. We're off to the right Luke's gospel starts with a lot more of the birth story. There are angels showing up. There are birth announcements. There are heavens exploding with angels before shepherds and wise men with gifts. And all of this stuff is kicking off in a very dramatic way. John starts his gospel much more poetic. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So they all take this different tat. When Matthew kicks off his blockbuster story of who Jesus is, he says, here's 42 generations of what led to Jesus showing up on the earth, which on its surface is not that interesting. It's not that exciting. If you were reading it as a novel, this would not be what gets you in a New York Times bestseller right off the bat. We're just going to, here's a bunch of generations. Here's a whole lot of people you've never heard of. There's a few names that you have. And this long list of this guy had this son, and this son had this son, and this son had this son, and it all leads to Jesus. There's not a lot there that seems super exciting. And yet that's where we're camping today. And we're not going to uh, touch on all these names. We are going to touch on a few of them. But there's a lot more going on in this list than just uh, genealogy. There's a lot more being presented here than just uh, a family tree. Within this list are a whole bunch of people who were sinners, who were broken, who were hopeless, who were falling apart. It's a bunch of people who were wounded and who were selfish and every variety of evil you can imagine, you can find in this list. And this is the family that God chose to bring the Messiah into the world. 
And within this list, there is a lot of redemption going on, not just in the list as a whole, but in the lives of individual people. God is setting things right. God is righting what is wrong. God is restoring what is lost. God has forgiven what is evil. God is fixing what is broken. God is at work in the lives of all of these people, all of it pointing to Jesus. So we're talking today about in Jesus, the Redeemer has arrived here on earth. And Redeemer is an Old Testament word. It's one of the ways that Israel knew the Lord. And the word for Redeemer in Hebrew is goel. And it wasn't just something they knew the Lord by. It was something that was built into the law. Israel would uh, got the law from the Lord. It was how they were to run their nation, how they were to follow the Lord in holiness. And within that law, that word redeemer shows up not as a name for the Lord, but as a, a way that we could help each other out. And so we're, there are three ways that we could be a redeemer for somebody else, according to Israel's law. One was the redeemer was a relative who buys back a field that was lost to poverty. So if I got just financially stuck and I couldn't hold on to the land in, in my family, that's a big deal because land was very important to Israel and it was supposed to stay in your family for generations and your father passed it down to you who got it from his father who got it from his father and so the land was meant to stay with your family strangers weren't supposed to have it so if I just found myself financially overwhelmed and I had to just sell this field in order to feed my children there's a provision built into the law where a redeemer one of your family members could come and legally buy that field back and put it back into your family. So it's a way where if something was lost, it could be restored back into your family name. So a redeemer would come, a cousin or a brother or an uncle or someone could come along and redeem that which was lost. Another way we could be a redeemer for somebody else, according to Israel's law, was it would be a relative who purchases a slave's freedom. Similarly, if I found myself just overwhelmed by debt, there was no way out, I couldn't pay anything back, I didn't really have any other option other than I could make myself a slave. I could sell myself into slavery. But it's built into the law that a redeemer, a relative of mine, could come and they could pay for my freedom and bring me out of bondage and release me from that. So where I'm in chains, a redeemer can come and set me free from those chains. The last one, this one's a little trickier to get our heads around maybe on this side of the cross, uh, a redeemer would be a relative who avenges a murder. So if I were killed... Uh, one of the ways that Israel, if I was murdered, one of the ways that Israel dealt with that was one of my relatives would be the one to execute my murderer. That's how they would execute justice. And the Old Testament law said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And so on this side of the cross, we see things a little differently. We don't hold to Old Testament vengeance laws as followers of Jesus. In the Old Testament, as God gives the law to Israel, uh, Israel is a state. Israel is a nation. And so the law given to Israel Israel has lots of commandments of what to do, what not to do, but it also has rules for how to run the nation. And one of the rules God gave Israel for how to run the nation was this idea of life for life. And so this was the method by which that happened. The family would be the ones to execute the murderer on behalf of the state. Now on this side of the cross, we would say things are a little different. We are not a state. We don't have the sword. Romans 13 says that God has given the state the sword 
to execute justice, to restrain evil, to stand up against uh, the evil forces of this world. Uh, we believe that God has given the church the gospel. We have something different to carry in our hands besides the sword. And it's hard to say we have the gospel of grace uh, for the world where God loves you even though you are his enemy. We love you even though you are our enemy. But while we love you and say that God loves you, we're going to hit you with the sword at the same time. So Anabaptists have always said we're going to leave the sword with the state. That is their job. Our job is to to love our enemies, as Jesus called us to, and that's what we call pacifism or peacemaking, part of Anabaptist teaching. Amen, 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 amen. All right, good. So the Redeemer was someone who helped us out in Israel's law when we couldn't help ourselves. If I've lost that field due to my poverty, I can't buy it back. If I've sold myself into slavery because I don't have any money, I can't get myself out of that. If I'm dead, obviously, there was no one there to execute the justice to set that right again. And so I can't redeem myself in any of these scenarios. I can't help myself. I need someone to come and do it for me. So putting those three things in another way, a redeemer was a family member. It was someone in our circle who would come along and who would restore or what was lost, they would come and, and wherever something was lost to poverty, they would take it back. They would release what was bound if I was in chains, and they would make right what was wrong. That was the role of the Redeemer in Israel's law. And so as we, we picture that, imagine that, that's a little different from the world we live in, obviously, but in times where I can't help myself, a redeemer is there. Someone who loves me in my family can come and redeem me instead. And Israel, along the way, began to take that word, Goel, redeemer, and say, that's exactly what the Lord does for us, more than any human, more than any family member. And they began to refer to him as Jehovah Goel, the Lord. Lord, my Redeemer. More than any human, the Lord restores what was lost in my life. The Lord sets free where I am bound and chained in my life. The Lord is the one who makes right what is wrong. God redeems my life. He doesn't just save me from my sins. He doesn't just save me from an eternity without him. He redeems my life. He restores and he fixes and he mends and he makes better what is not right. He is my redeemer, Jehovah Goel. And so Israel began to call him that. Here's one example, Isaiah 41, 14. Israel is in trouble. Israel is afraid. But God says, do not be afraid, O Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Where you can't help yourself, God says, I will help you. Where you can't deliver yourself, I will deliver you. Where you can't make that right, I will make that right. Where you can't fix it, I will fix it. We can't always do it all on our own. We need a Redeemer, and that's one of the names of God. He is there as our Redeemer. He restores what is lost, he releases what's bound, and he makes right what is wrong, even if we are the ones who made it wrong. He has the ability to redeem even that. So in this long list, this boring genealogy that we read to start off, there is a lot of God's redemption going on in the lives of individuals and in the big picture of what he's doing in this family line. So we are going to touch on a few of them, certainly not all of them. There's a lot of names on this list we don't know very much about. But Matthew puts it together as a way of saying uh, Jesus the Messiah is being born into this family line. And the prophecy 
prophecies of the Messiah had said. He needs to be a descendant of Abraham. He needs to be a descendant of David. He needs to be of the tribe of Judah. And so that's part of what's happening here, is Matthew is saying Jesus is hitting all the points he's supposed to hit in terms of fulfilling prophecy. But let's take a look at a few of these things. The first one on the list is Abraham. And the whole Jewish race starts with Abraham. Abraham is the top of the pyramid when it comes to the Jewish people, because Abraham was the one that God appeared to and said, I will make a nation out of you. They will be my people, my chosen people. And so Abraham is an elderly man. He is childless. And in that culture especially, uh, there was an assumption that if you didn't have a child, there was something wrong with you and God. You had done something bad, because otherwise, God, why is God not blessing you with a child? We would certainly not put any credence to that today. But that is what they believed at the time. And so Abraham and his wife are childless. They desire children, but it is just not happening for them. And so Abraham is 75 years old when the promise first comes. His wife is 65, and God says, you will have a child, and I will build a nation through you. And one day, your descendants will be so numerous, they'll be like the stars in the sky, they will be like the sand on the shore. And if you can put yourself in Abraham's place, uh, in his wife's place, to, to want a child, to be waiting for a child, to be praying for a child for decades, praying into this, for decades, waiting for this. I heard a, a woman preacher saying once, she was talking about her own experience trying to get pregnant, and every month you're anticipating, and, and a lot of months you're disappointed, and then next month, maybe this month, and then you're disappointed. And if you can imagine that, you know, decade after decade, and then eventually just reaching the age where, you know, for the woman, that's just not going to happen anymore. You are past the age in which you can have a baby, but God had made a promise and he was faithful to keep the promise, that he who made the promise was faithful. Abraham put all of his hope in him. And so where there was hopelessness, where Abraham is in a hopeless situation, where there is nothing he can do about it, you can't make yourself get pregnant. God has to make that happen. There is absolutely nothing he can do. God redeems his situation. Where there is hopelessness, God redeems it and brings hope, not because of anything Abraham is doing or earning, but because God had the power to do what he had promised. His situation is redeemed. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob is a jerk, if you read the Bible. That's the Hebrew word for it. He is not a good guy. And the name Jacob literally means deceiver, and that is who he is. He is a liar, he is a thief, and his whole life, uh, the first part of his life, is him just through sneakiness, through lies, through deception, through manipulation, him trying to better himself trying to better his position, better his finances, better his, uh, his status in the world. And Jacob steals from his brother, lies to his father, steals from his father-in-law, deceives his father-in-law, and just his whole life is just this deception after deception. It is lie after lie, and he's just trying to make a, a way for himself by any means necessary, uh, even if it's sinful, even if it's evil. But scripture tells the story of Jacob having an encounter with the Lord, and he wrestles with the Lord through the night. And as daybreak comes, the Lord says, let me go. It's time for me to go. And Jacob says famously, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
And that's such a light bulb moment for Jacob, because up until this point, Jacob's just been trying to bless himself. He's been trying to earn it himself. And even if he has to lie or steal or manipulate to make it better for himself, that is what he'll do. But this is his light bulb of like, oh, the blessing that I really want only comes from the Lord. I can't make it happen by myself. And I certainly shouldn't be sinning in order to try and make that happen. So I understand now. I will not let you go until you bless me, because your blessing is what I need. Your blessing is the most important thing. And God is not angry or annoyed by this. God blesses him. The blessing of God comes, and Jacob is never the same after that. We don't see him lying anymore. We don't see him stealing anymore. We see him walking with the Lord from then on out. And when God blesses him, he says, your name is no longer going to be deceiver. I give you the name Israel which means he wrestles with God because you have wrestled with God and you have persevered. You have pressed on and pressed through. God was pleased uh, with his desire to seek God for a blessing. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the liar, Jacob the thief is redeemed. He becomes a different man through the encounter by the grace of God. There's a few women on this list, and it's worth noting because uh, you might not know because we're not Hebrew experts, but all of the names on that list are male, and that's typically how you would do a genealogy. Uh, the men would pass on the family name, and you were considered part of the family of the men. That was how things were tracked. But there's a few women's names on there, and so that must be important, because that just usually wasn't done back then. And so there's a few things just to point out with the ladies on this list. And well, the first is Judah and Tamar. So this is a weird story, just to give you the heads up. So Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, and he has a son, and his son marries Tamar, and his son dies. Tamar is left a widow. Now, under the customs of the time, the widow would then marry one of the brothers. It's weird to think about. Is Sarah marrying my brother if I was gone? That's gross and creepy, but... But it was normal at the time, and the reason why is that when a woman got married, she was considered uh, not part of her family of origin anymore. She joined her husband's family, and so it was her husband's family's job to take care of her. She, she wouldn't go back to her old family if her husband passed away. And so by a brother marrying her, uh, again, it seems weird in our context, but in the culture of the time, it was a grace and a mercy to the woman. It was a way of saying, you are still going to be a part of this family. You are one of us. We are going to take care of you. You can have children here. And so it really was intended to be a blessing. So Tamar's husband dies, Judah's son. And so Judah gives her an, another son, and she marries the second son. And then the second son dies. And Judah says, oh, this, what's with this lady? Like everyone who marries her dies. I don't want to give her another son and have him die. So he doesn't do that for her. He leaves her. He abandons her, essentially. You won't have any more sons. Uh, you're not really a part of this family. What he's really saying is we are not going to take care of you. You're on your own. And so she comes up with a scheme. It's not a good scheme. I wouldn't recommend it. But she decides that she is going to get into this family one way or another. So she disguises herself as a prostitute. She waits at the side of the road till Judah's walking by. She offers herself to him, seduces him, gets pregnant through the encounter, and then comes back with a, aha, I'm pregnant with your baby. Who's out of the family now? And she has twins. And one of the twins is in the family line. Judah and Tamar have their sons, Perez. And, and so they are part of this genealogy of Jesus. And so uh, we are not in any way endorsing this story, but this woman who would have been abandoned and rejected and on her own 
has her situation redeemed, even though she made terrible choices, even though uh, Judah was not honoring her the way that he should. Uh, there was redemption in there, as weird as it sounds, and Jesus was pleased to have his family come from this line, that this union, sinful as it was, Jesus was going to redeem it in order to create the family that he would be born into. Rahab is another one of the women on the list, and we might be a bit more familiar with her. Uh, she is a prostitute. She lives in the city of Jericho in the promised land, and when Israel is getting ready to invade the promised land, Rahab helps them out. Rahab uh, shelters spies and tells them where the weaknesses are and gives them advice and gives them tips, and so they promise her that when we invade the promised land, when we take Jericho, you will not be harmed, and so she is protected, and she eventually comes into the family of God. She marries an Israelite, and so her coming from a background of prostitution, that is not a great way for anyone to live, obviously, and she is redeemed out of that, and she's not left alone even. The family of God welcomes her in. She marries. She's able to bear children. Her whole situation gets redeemed. She lives a very different life as the redemption of the Lord shows up in her life. Um, Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is another one of the women, and you can read about her story in the book of Ruth. Like Tamar, Ruth is a widow. Her husband has died, and there are no sons for her to marry, and so she is stuck. And again, to be a woman without a family is a, a terrifying prospect at the time, because uh, who's going to provide for you? You can't have children. Your children won't be able to provide for you when you become old. And so she is a widow. She is lost. She is out of luck. But a redeemer comes in the form of Boaz, who is a relative, a distant relative, and he marries her, and he brings her into the family, and they have a, a happy marriage together. She is able to conceive children, and those children as well become part of the family line of Jesus. So her loneliness and her heartache get redeemed. God restores uh, what was lost by bringing her another husband. David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the other, the final women on the list, and King David uh, was the man after God's own heart. He was a good and godly man. He wrote many of the Psalms of worship that we have in Scripture. He shows good character over and over again. He is brave. He is strong. He is devoted to the Lord. He seems to be this, you know, perfect manly mix of super tough and masculine, but also a really tender heart before the Lord, and, uh, and he is held up, other than Jesus, really as the example of godly living for the Jewish people. It is King David that we aspire to be like, and they would not hold Jesus up the way we would, obviously. But they, the King David is the moral guy that we look to as an, as an example, but he is not perfect, and his big failure happens when he sees a woman named Bathsheba. He catch, she catches his eye one night. She is married. He is married to other people. She is married to someone else, and at a time when kings could have lots of wives, she was not one of his. And so he brings her to him. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. David now has a problem. He's the king of the nation. Adultery is a sin, and it's one that you can be executed for. And so he is in trouble. So his big master plan is let's kill her husband. I'll marry her right away. And hopefully no one knows how to count to nine months, and it'll all just look like this was my baby the whole time. And so that's what happens. He has the husband killed. He marries her right away. And there would be big consequences to come as a result of this sin. He covers it up for a while. Through the prophet Nathan, the Lord brings it about. And yet when the Lord confronts David through the prophet, it's not what it should have been, which is, David, you're going to die for your sin. Adultery is a capital offense. Murder is a capital offense. But the first thing out of Nathan's mouth is, David, you are not going to die. 
Even though the law says that's what should happen, there's going to be mercy for you. There is redemption for you. And God is going to redeem even your sin will be something that he can use and he can take and he can fix and he can use for his glory. Bathsheba is uh, one of the great, 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 whatever ancestors of Jesus' family, as is David. So even in their sin, God used it to bring this all about. Uh, they would have a child named Solomon. Solomon famously had the Lord appear to him and say, what can I give you to help you? And Solomon didn't ask for riches, didn't ask for fame. He said, give me a wise and discerning heart, Lord, so that I can lead your people well, because I don't know what I'm doing. And God was so pleased with that that he gave him a wise and discerning heart and also gave him wealth and also gave him fame. But as Solomon, as good as he was, he wrote many of the Proverbs. He wrote uh, different sections of scripture. But it says in 1 Kings 11 that at the end of his life, uh, at one point, he had a thousand wives and concubines. One thousand. I think we can agree that's an excessive amount of ladies in your life. I don't know how you keep track of it all. But he had a thousand of them. One is plenty for most of us. <laughs> I love you, honey. So it says that a lot of these women were foreign women. They were not Israelites. They come, came from different nations. They served different gods. And the word of the Lord says uh, they lured Solomon's heart away from the Lord. They took him away from God. And he had been so devout and faithful, but at the end it all fell apart. And so God said to Solomon, you know, I showed up to you. I showed you who I was. I gave you uh, this incredible wisdom. I gave you the desires of your heart, and you still have rejected me to follow other gods. There are going to be consequences to this, and one of the things that's going to happen in the next generation is that the nation of Israel that you love is going to split, and that's what happens. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and Jeroboam rebels against him, and Israel splits into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south, and and often they would be at war with each other. There'd be, I mean, they were separate nations, but it's more like a civil war. Israelite is fighting against Israelite and fighting nations around them. And then there's a long line of kings, which you can read about in the books of Kings and Chronicles, and most of them are not great. A few of them are shining examples of godliness. Most of them are not. And so what we have are generation after generation of violence, of assassination, stealing the throne uh, through coups and through plotting, broken treaties, idol worship. There's even a couple of kings of Judah who sacrifice their babies on the fire to other gods. They actually murder their kids in order to make an offering to these, these other idols. And so there's generation after generation of wickedness. God sends prophet after prophet to them, saying, guys, turn back, turn away, knock it off. And Israel would kill a lot of those prophets and certainly ignore a lot of those prophets. And so there's generation of just uh, some just unimaginable evil, right? To actually slaughter children in the name of, of honoring a god and killing people and starting wars over wealth and all of these things happening generation after generation and there is a point finally where god says enough is enough god had told them i'm bringing you into this promised land but if you continue in your evil the promised land will vomit you out you will not be allowed to stay this land is holy and you will be sent away into exile and that's exactly what happens the babylonian empire comes against them Second Chronicles 36, 14 to 17 gives us the why. Why did all this happen? As the king of Babylon invades, kills many, burns Jerusalem to the ground, and then takes Israelites and scatters them around the empire. It says, furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful. 
following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and took them off into exile. So God, in this, in this sense, is that parent saying, knock it off, knock it off. If you do that one more time, here's what's going to happen. And we've had that with our kids. You know, if you do this one more time, here's the consequence. And my son will stare me in the eye and do it again. I'm like, oh, you brat. <laughs> I don't want to punish you. Now I have to. Why are you making me do that? And so God has warned and warned and warned, and they have spurned every warning. And there is a point, although Scripture says God is unbelievably patient and unbelievably gracious, there is a point where his patience runs out and consequences falls because of the sin that we have committed. And so in these genealogies that we're looking at, in the stories of all these people, uh, just because God forgives the sin doesn't necessarily mean there are zero consequences for the sin. But even in the consequences, there is still hope. Because Israel gets taken off in chains to Babylon. And then God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says this in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, for the exile, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. That second line most of us probably know. So just to, to tie this all together, Israel has sinned and committed unimaginable evil again and again and again. Not just a little bit, but generation after generation, evil after evil, sin after sin, murder after murder, dishonoring the Lord, idol worship, every horrible thing you can imagine. They do, and they don't just do it once. They do it over and over and over again to the point where God says the, the discipline of God has to fall on you guys or this will never change. You're going to go into exile, but even even as you go into exile, I will redeem what is happening because of the stuff that you guys did. Even though you are the ones to bring this all on yourself, I have a plan to restore what was lost. I will redeem your situation. Even though you did it to yourself, I will fix it. It's a good God we serve. Even though you have caused this, I will make it right. Jehovah Goel, the Lord, my Redeemer, will redeem us even in our sin. And if God can redeem Israel after all that stuff you did, I don't know what you've done in your life, but you probably haven't sacrificed a baby on the fire. Uh, if you have, we should talk after the service. We need to make a phone call after but if that, like, whatever you have done, it's not worse than that. And if God can redeem that, then there's nothing you've done that can't be redeemed, right? There is nothing you've done that he cannot restore, that he cannot release. There is no wrong that he cannot make right because he is our redeemer. Last name we'll look at on that list of the genealogy is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is part of the line of Jesus, and he was the one, as Israel is in exile, God moves on the heart of the king in exile to let them go back and resettle their land. And Zerubbabel comes back. You can read about him in the book of Ezra, and his job is to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And then the Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls 
of the city, right? What was lost is being restored. What was broken down is being rebuilt. And that is the promise of the Redeemer, not just for Israel, but for all of us who follow after him in this genealogy. There is a lot of evil. There's a lot of bad choices. There's a lot of helpless situations where people cannot help themselves. But Jehovah Goel, the Lord my Redeemer, is at work over and over and over and over again. The faithfulness of God is at work over and over and over again. And so whatever you've got, people sometimes say, I got some skeletons in my closet. You got nothing on the skeletons in Jesus' family closet, right? There's a few rotten apples on the old family tree. Yeah, you're not throwing babies in a fire, so take it easy on yourself. Sin is sin, and sometimes our sin has consequences. Even when we have to face the consequences of our sin, God, our Redeemer, is still at work to restore and set right and to make right everything that has been wrong. That is his name. It's who he is. And so as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the baby that was born, it's not just that the Savior has come. The Redeemer came and walked among us, the one who is setting right everything that was wrong. And part of the, the, the part that we play in this is acknowledging uh, just like we said last week, we can't save ourselves, so we need a Savior. Sometimes we need to acknowledge, I can't redeem this situation on my own. I need a Redeemer. I need help to actually make this better. I need God's help to make this work. Jesus has come as our Redeemer. As Luke put it, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Redeemer is here. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you've got questions about anything to do with the message, we'd love to keep chatting about that and keep that going. There is nobody who understood this idea of a redeemer better than Job. And if you remember Job's story, uh, Job loved the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He served the Lord. And he led his children in the ways of the Lord. And he prospered. He was wealthy. He was healthy. He had a big family. Everything is growing, going great for Job. And then through no fault of Job's, everything falls apart. And he loses all of his children in one day in a tragic accident. And he loses all of his wealth in a day through a series of misfortunes. And his health goes away. He's in physical agony. His wife turns against him. Just, you know, just curse God and die, she says to him. Enough is enough. And he has friends who come to encourage him. They say, hey, we're here to lift you up. You must have done something really terrible. You better figure out what it is before God kills you. And you go, that's not super encouraging. And so Job is carrying the weight of all of this, and the book of Job is him wrestling with it. Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why would God let this happen to me? I'm a good man. I've served him. What is going on? So it's Job's wrestling match. He debates with his friends, and they're trying to figure this all out. Why is suffering happening to an innocent man? And so Job has lost absolutely everything and has no reason for any hope or no reason to, to hold on to any faith, no reason to think that God is good in terms of his circumstances. And in the midst of that, in Job 19.25, Job cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And we will see that one day in its fullness as Jesus returns. But this has also happened already. When Jesus was born, the Redeemer came and stood upon the earth. And Job, who had lost everything, again, had no reason for hope, no reason to trust that God was going to be faithful. Job's going, I didn't do anything wrong. I still lost everything. But in the midst of that, faith and hope rises up. I know that my Redeemer lives. Of all the names he could have chosen for God, I know my Redeemer lives. 
And in the end, we will see him stand on this earth. And one day, every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. Everything will be fixed. But Job knew God as the Redeemer. God who restores what is lost. God who releases what is bound. God who makes right what is wrong. My Redeemer is at work in my life. And you know what? You read the end of Job's story, and God did redeem everything. Life didn't go back exactly like it was before, but God repaid what was lost. God restored everything that had been taken. God filled his life with joy once again. And so what we can take away from this, two things. One is to start to look at our lives through the eyes of redemption. The Bible says that not everything is good, and that's not a hard thing to grasp, obviously. Not everything is good, but in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not everything is good, but God can pull good out of anything. And to, so to start to look at our lives through the eyes of redemption, Lord, what are you doing that is good in the midst of this thing that is terrible? What are you working out in me? What are you working out in my family? What are you working out in your eternal purposes that I don't understand? Help me to see this through the eyes of redemption, where you are working good out, where you are restoring and releasing, where you are making right what is wrong. Help me to see through those eyes. The other side of that is to say, where can I be an agent of God's redemption around me? Where is there someone lonely where I can invite them to my table? Where is there a financial need that I could go and support? Where is there someone broken down that I can go and encourage? Where can I come along somebody? Not just I'm going to pray a prayer that God does it, but where can I be? The hands of feet in Jesus. And where there is wrong, I can help right it. And where there is hurt, I can help heal it. And where there is need, I can go and help fill that need. Where can I be a part of your redemption? Where can you be a part of mine? I know that my Redeemer lives. Job cried out. I know in the end everything will be made right, and I put my hope in that God. Redeemer is his name, and we're going to worship him as Redeemer before we go, and so I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we sing. The words will be up on the screen. Please join us. Perhaps you've come this morning, and you haven't been to church for a long time, or maybe you've never been to a church in your life, and this season doesn't necessarily connect with what your heart's at. And this time of year is about the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk about redemption. When we follow Jesus, we are redeemed because of what he's done for us. And maybe you've come here this morning and that's where you're at. You're trying to figure out who Jesus is. And we wanna encourage you to know this, that when Jesus was born in that stable many years ago, he was born for a purpose. The reason for the season, why we celebrate what we celebrate. And we want you to know the truth of that. It's good together with family and give out these gifts and do all those great things. Those are good things. However, you take away all that. The reason we celebrate this time of year is because of the birth of our Savior. And I hope that encourages you because if you are on the journey of faith today and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, a reminder to you that he was born for you and he died for you as well because he loves you. And that's the hope and the reason we celebrate what we do. For those of you who call yourselves Christ followers, we have been redeemed, and we are grateful for that, amen? And we should be grateful for you that are looking in at Jesus and trying to figure this out. He can redeem you as well. Because of his death on the cross and his birth, we are redeemed because of that. One of the ways we like to encourage people as well 
is to pray with you. There'll be people up front after the service that can encourage you, that can pray with you, that can meet with you. They'll be up front hanging around here. So we encourage you to come forward if you want to get prayed for. As people are getting prayed for, if you want to visit and connect, again, a reminder, do that in the foyer, down the hallway, just so we can create a place of ministry here. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you were born. Jesus in that manger many years ago. And what your birth has meant for us as human beings. And thank you that when you were born, you had a mission in front of you and you went for that mission and you represented so well who you are to us. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for doing what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, today the hope of who you are is real to every single one of us. You show us in the depth in our hearts that you were born for all of us and you love all of us and you died for all of us as well. And one day you will come back, but in between time, Lord Jesus, Help us to live for you. Help us understand who you are in our lives. And for those who are trying to figure it out, Jesus, I pray you would show them who you are in their lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday, Meadowbrook.